This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Our sermon text this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you would please turn there, that's found on page 567, excuse me, of the Pew Bible. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read the bad news. Isaiah, of course, as a prophet of the Lord, is called to deliver God's word to his people and call them to faithfulness. And the the news that he delivers in chapter 1 is not good news. He says that God's people, whom God has raised up like a child, have rebelled against him. He talks about how God's people have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, if they had not had a few faithful within their, within their midst, they would have been destroyed utterly, just like Sodom and Gomorrah were. God derides their false worship, how they come to him with their lips, speaking his praises, but with their hearts, they are far from him. They do not honor the Lord. They have not embraced him truly from their heart as their God. So he delivers some bad news, and the news of judgment is looming over And that begs the question then, in Isaiah chapter 2, is that the end of the story for God's people? Is there any hope left for God's people? And Isaiah's answer is yes, there is good news. There is hope. Of course, this is a word in verse 1 that Isaiah delivers. This is a revelation from God. These are not Isaiah's words. This is a word from the Lord, a word of hope to his people And this is something Isaiah saw, a great vision that's going to guide our reading of our passage this morning to God's people, that the coming judgment is not the end of the story. So let's read Isaiah chapter 2 and see what good news God has for his people. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Let's give our attention to God's word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God, we confess that often we do not have a heart that is gripped by you and your grace. We have not embraced you as you have wanted us to, and we ask for more grace that we may come to you, that we may give you our whole heart, even now, even this morning. Help us to hear your word and call us to come and to walk in your light. Amen. Have you ever seen mountains moving? It might seem like an odd question, something ridiculous, mountains moving. 
That's not a part of our ordinary experience, is it? But I'm told even uh, mountains like the Himalayas are still inching upward slowly by slowly as the plates of the Earth's crust shift around. They're still moving inch by inch. A lot of the mountains aren't, are going down, but slowly by slowly they're, they're moving. It's still happening. But we don't see that, do we? That's, it's too slow. It's too incremental for us to observe. But in this vision of Isaiah the prophet, there's something very observable. The mountains are shooting up. The mountain of the Lord becomes the most prominent mountain. Now, it helps to know something about the mountains in Jerusalem. This, of course, is describing the mountain where God's temple was, Mount Zion. It was in Jerusalem, and there were a lot of mountain peaks in that area. But the Temple Mount was not the highest among them. There were many right even there, the Mount of Olives and others right around that area. They were, much, they were higher than the mountain of the Lord. And all of a sudden, Isaiah sees a vision of the mountain of the Lord shooting up, becoming the most prominent, the highest of the mountains, the chief mountain. Now, I'm from Virginia, and we have some mountains in Virginia, the Blue Ridge Mountains. They're very beautiful. They're not that high. They're, you know, the, the highest peak are in 5,000 feet. But I've visited other parts of the U.S., and I've been on uh, Pikes Peak in Colorado, over 14,000 feet. In fact, when you get up to Pikes Peak, you can, after a while, tell that, hey, there's, there's not as much oxygen up here. Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling a little lightheaded. I'm going to stop walking around. I'm just going to take it easy. And, you know, my head's starting to hurt a little bit after a while, and maybe we should go. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, the, the different perspectives we have on what, what is real mountain? In fact, if you're from the east and you go out west, you talk to people who they talk about their mountains and they, they'll tell you that your mountains aren't real mountains. Um, if you really want to solve that problem, all you have to do, though, uh, is just ask them. And, and then how tall is Everest again? And that just kind of it shows them that, you know, they, they need not to be too proud and uh, think too highly of their mountains. But here we have an amazing picture of the growth of God's kingdom, of a reversal of God's mountain becoming prominence and the nations flowing to it. If it becomes the highest of the mountain, if the nations are flowing to it, again, it's another stark and vivid picture of what's happening. Water flowing uphill. It's not water, of course. It's the nations. They're going uphill. They're streaming. They're flowing to the Lord's mountain to worship him. God has acted and and brought about a mighty reversal in his world. Now, that's so kind of hard to believe. Just as when I say, have you ever seen mountains move? You know, if someone told us they really saw a mountain move, we we would kind of doubt that, wouldn't we? We wouldn't believe them. And in one sense, this was hard to believe for God's people, to believe that one day God's mountain really would be the place where God's people would worship, that God really would be the God of all nations, that everyone would worship him because of the state of God's people at the time, which we mentioned, where no one is really following the Lord. It would be not just an upset, it would be an amazing reversal where God's people would say, you mean our God? Our God? I see all these nations around us, strong nations, powerful nations, with their gods. You mean our God of our country? And the state we're in is going to be lifted up and exalted. Perhaps there would be a bit of unbelief and doubting. But in another sense, this is not hard to believe at all. If we remember the burden of the entire Old Testament from the very beginning is that the God of the people of Israel 
is not just the God of the people of Israel. From the beginning, the point of Israel being Israel was to remember that he's the God, he's the creator God, the God of all peoples, and that through them, they were to bless the entire nations and bring them to their true God, to bring them home. And Isaiah's word is that very, that very fact, that God will recover his people. It's going to happen. There is hope. And we are called to participate in that. Look in verse 5. We are called as God's people to come to walk in the light of the Lord. As we walk in the light of the Lord, we shine. We show His glory. And the nations around us see that God is the true King. So what are those reasons that our passage gives us for hope? For us, that calls us to participate, to walk in His light, that encourages us. We're going to look at three reasons. First, the reasons we have for hope, the reasons we need to walk in God's light and not give up is because of when God will do this and then what, we'll look at what God will do and then how God will do this. So let's look at when God will do this. Look in verse 2, it says, it shall come to pass. This is obviously talking about the future. Now, in, in uh, prophetic books of the Bible, it's a misconception to say that everything is dealing with the future. But oftentimes that is the case, and this is one of those passages. It's talking about the future. It's going to come to pass. When is it going to come to pass? Well, it says, in the latter days. What are the latter days? And we have to be careful not to think of what we might mean. If we said, we talked about the last days or the latter days, what might we mean by that? We might be saying, well, it's the time right before Jesus returns to this earth. That's what we might mean by it. But it's important to take the biblical account on its own uh, and look at it on its own and see what is, this, what is Isaiah saying? What is this vision that God has given him saying? Well, if we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament as a whole, that phrase is usually connected to the time of the Messiah. So it's the age when the Messiah has come, when God breaks in to set things right. And the New Testament says clearly, we are in that time. In fact, Paul uses the phrase, the latter days, to describe his own present time. And all the, the uh, heresies and the, the false prophets that are abounding, he said this is an evidence in 2 Timothy 3, he says, of the last days. And it's the time of the Messiah, not just when Jesus entered at his incarnation, or at his second coming, but it's the entire time of the Messiah from the prophet's perspective. That's what's being talked about. So that's, that's really the first answer. Why should we have hope? Because it's already happening. The mountains are already moving. Turn to John 4, if you would, for just a moment. Jesus said very, this very thing in his earthly ministry. You remember, many of you, the conversation he had with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, And in John chapter 4, in verse 20, we'll begin. She says, and they're talking again about worship, about where you should worship, on what mountain. Because the Samaritans, she worshipped on a particular mountain in Samaria. Obviously, the the Jewish people worshipped in Jerusalem on the mountain of the Lord that we've been talking about. And in verse 20, she says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, for we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is 
now here, Jesus says. It's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So what is Jesus saying? When is this going to happen? Well, it's already begun. It's already happening. The Father is calling people from all places, not just go to Jerusalem, but to wherever they are, to give him true worship, to respond to him as their true God. So it's already happening, and we are those nations. It's already beginning. The mountains are moving, but obviously it's not yet fully come to pass, has it? The vision that we see in Isaiah 2 Uh, we would have to say that's definitely some exaggerated language if that describes our present state fully. So it's obviously not the case. There's still work to be done. God is, though, already begun that work. The mountains are moving. And it's helpful when we remember the purpose of prophecy. It's not, the purpose of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. The purpose of prophecy is not so we can make detailed charts and notes about the future. The point of prophecy, of getting a glimpse of what is going to happen, of what God is doing, is so that we will respond now. It's a moral call. It asks asks us, it demands something of us. It says, respond, take part. And that's why in verse 5 of Isaiah 2, that's the call of the passage. This glimpse of the future is meant to say, now, God's people, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why? And we have a reason for hope. Because it's already begun. And it shows the people at that time in a picture they could understand of nations making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It pictures the rising of God's rule over the entire earth. And it pictures for us what is happening, what has already begun in our world today. Now, it's hard for Isaiah in Isaiah's day for them to believe that this would happen because of the rebellion of God's people, because how God's people had fell from prominence from among the nations. Is it hard for us to believe this today? Is it hard for us to believe that God will win? We see the power of sin all around us. We all have known and know and sometimes have been a part of sad stories in churches or in relationships with other believers even where where sin has destroyed and wreaked havoc among God's people And it's hard sometimes to believe that what God has said will really come to pass. It's hard to hold on to that hope sometimes. We see Christians fighting each other. We see churches, again, torn apart. We have situations in our lives that are so difficult with Christians and other believers that we can't possibly see with our problems how they could be resolved. But then, especially then, God calls us to remember He is God. He is going to move mountains. And it calls us to faithfulness and to not give up hope that whatever we're facing, even when, especially when we can't see how it matters, we need to be faithful in what he's called us to be. And God can do it. Uh, One of my favorite cartoons, uh, it was in the 90s, I forget, probably early, mid-90s, was a cartoon called Pinky and the Brain. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that cartoon. Pinky and the Brain were two laboratory mice and... They, after a long day at work in the laboratory, they, when the scientists left and the lights were turned off, they obviously got on with the real program and what they were really after. And uh, with the two characters being Pinky and the Brain, you can kind of figure out who was the 
brains of the outfit, but every night after the scientist left, Pinky would say to Brain, Brain, what are we going to do tonight? And Brain would say, the same thing we do every night, Pinky, with a maniacal look on his face. We're going to try to take over the world. And so these two laboratory mice would try to take over the world every single night. They would come so close because Brain really was smart. He was calculating. They would get so close, and then at the very end, they would fail, and they'd have to go back to the lab. Now, it was very clever. It was very funny. But if we're not careful, we have to catch ourselves. If we would have the same sort of thoughts, we, we look at that and say, well, of course, mice can't take over the world. But we would catch ourselves and say, let's be careful. When we hear about God's mission, when we hear about God filling the earth with his glory, what is our attitude? Can we catch our attitude having a, a little tint of unbelief to it? Do we really believe that? Because, let's face it, all around us, we're bombarded with pictures of, of tragedy, of violence. On our televisions, we cannot just see the tragedy in our city here, but around the world. And we wonder, is there really any hope? Are the mountains really going to move? Do we really believe that? And when we think about the history of our country, did you know that we all kind of have this picture that the number of people who identify themselves as Christians in our country in the last hundred years, in the 20th century, it declined. The number of people saying, I, I profess Christ. And that, that saps our hope sometimes when we look at what's happening around us. But we also need to remember this. Although the number of professing Christians declined, uh, it's easy to make a case that the number of committed Christians is actually on the rise. Not just in our country, but around the world. And to remember, uh, in fact, in a, in a worldwide village of committed Christians, there would be three Africans, three Asians, three Latin Americans, two North Americans, one European, and a Pacific Islander. So when we see the things around us in our country, we need to remember that there is a wider world out there that is God's world. And we're a part of it. And God is working. And because the mountains have begun to move, it calls us that, to be encouraged that our, our work is not in vain, to be faithful. So we've seen that it's already happening, that when God is going to do this, it's already started. We're not there yet. And that gives us hope. It calls us to be faithful. But secondly, let's look closer at what God will do. What is going to happen? The nations will come, as we saw in the vision, and worship on God's mountain. Now, the mountains in the ancient Near East were places of worship. Typically, that's where people would go to worship their gods. They would go up to the high places because they thought there they would meet the heavens. That's where they could commune with the gods. And the gods functioned in the Old Testament like this. Each nation had their own god or gods. So when you saw a nation who was very strong, you would say, hmm, um, I wonder who their God is, because obviously they're doing well. It's their God who's bringing them prosperity. That was the mindset of the culture around God's people at the time. And when, let's say, some nation defeated another, you would say, oh, well, their God was weak. They couldn't protect their own, their own that God could not protect his own people. And so if the Philistines wiped someone out, you would say, wow. Uh, their God, their God, the, the ones who were wiped out, they were no match for the Philistines' God, Dagon. Um, and ever since the Tower of Babel, when God scattered the nations, 
when they pursued their own way, when they exalted themselves at the Tower of Babel, but then were scattered, the self-exaltation, the pursuing, the, the pursuing of their own security apart from God, that continued, and they pursued it through their, their gods and their own false worship. And now again, the point of being Israel, what was Israel's role? To bring them back. Turn over to Genesis chapter 12. When God called Abraham and established the nation of Israel, that was foremost on his mind. When he called Abraham, he said in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that, you hear the purpose there, the purpose clause, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's call, the call of his descendants, the nation of Israel, were to exist for the nations, that through them God would bring blessing, to turn them back. And so as God's people lived with their God, were provided for by their God, as they worshipped their God, the nations would see That is the God who is with his people. That is the God who takes care of them, who gives them wise laws so they can live in prosperity and in peace together. There is no God that I've seen like that. I will come to this God. That was the mission of the nation of Israel. And God's mission, God's message to his people in Isaiah is again, this will happen. The nations will see that I'm the true God. Look in verse 3. They're coming. They say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. You see the eager desire they have to come to God as their true God. And again, in verse 3, they have a desire to sit under his word. They say, let him teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And how is this going to happen? Because the law, the truth of God, the word of God that teaches us who God is and what he has done for us, and his law that we may walk with him. All of that is going to go forth and the nations will be taught by it. They will learn about their true creator and how he has created them to live. And it has incredible effects on their lives. Look in verse 4. They're going to take their instruments of war and beat them into instruments for agriculture. They're going to put away their instruments of violence. And they're going to steward the land as God originally intended them to do and be at peace with one another. God is being exalted and he wants us to know his rule will bring down all of the self-exaltation of man. And so what is God doing? All of these nations who in their pride have said, we don't need you, God. We're going to pursue our own way. We're going to procure our own security. We're We're going to procure our own happiness at the expense of other nations. I know uh, growing up even there was a time when I thought the greatest thing in the world would maybe be to put two crayfish in a bucket or a jar together and see which one would win. Uh, To see which one would win and, and, and gain mastery over the other. And that was entertaining to me. But now I see that's not wisdom. That's not, uh, that's not something that should be entertainment. And that's what God says about these nations who are preying on one another trying to secure 
prosperity and happiness at other nations' expense, fighting each other, preying on each other with war to take and so much of the history of war. Now, the, the Christian church has confessed there is such a thing as a just war. As Christians, we need to know that. We need to study that so that we can help inform our world of what that would look like. But we all know that so much of the history of war is just taking, stealing, murder, trying to secure something at others' expense, not loving our neighbor. Now, many of us have experienced sibling rivalry at some point in our lives. Some of us still do. And it was very interesting to me a few weeks ago when Serena and Venus Williams, the famous tennis players, Americans, played in the Wimbledon final. And some of the stories that came out about their relationship and how they uh, have a great friendship. And when they're out there on the court, you can just tell. They're trying to win, but there's something higher going on there. Their friendship is more important to them than winning and gaining mastery over getting some fame at the expense of their sister. And I, I can, it reminded me of growing up, and I would think back to playing sports with my brothers, and I remember when my older brother could just pound me in basketball, and I, I was shorter than him. He, I was slower than him, and I was weaker than him, and he could just he could take me out. And I would get so mad because I wanted to be better than him. I wanted to be able to say, I beat you. I was not interested in his good. I was interested in my own success, my own prosperity. And then I can think to other times, though, later in my life when I matured a little and I would play with my younger brother, who was then stronger than me, (laughs) better at basketball than me by that time. And even when he would beat my team, I would be glad. I would say, you know what, that's my brother. That's okay. I like that even. Because there's something more important going on. Now, Jonathan Edwards, in his masterful work called The Nature of True Virtue, he talks about the nations and how each nation or even each person who tries to put something higher than God will only pursue, it will just bring destruction in that relationship. So if God is the highest thing in our lives, if he is the the goal that we have, we're free to pursue the best thing for each other. So, But if God is not the highest thing, then I have to procure my own happiness, my own security. I have to do that at the expense of others. But only when God is exalted, when God is raised up, am I free to let my neighbor and wish for his best and her best. And it calls us to repent, to make God the most prominent thing in our lives. Again, because as God teaches us here in Isaiah 2, the story is moving forward and we have a role in it. So that's what's happening. God is taking down our self-exaltation, the self-exaltation of all the nations. And he's bringing us to himself and showing us that he's our true God. Now, how is God going to do this? It's obviously by his power and grace. The vision makes that clear. It's God who exalts himself. But how does that happen? Well, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, it's through God's chosen instrument, the Messiah. And Isaiah begins to give us this picture of God exalting himself, but then he fills out that picture of how that's going to happen, of how it's the king, the Messiah, who is going to come in Isaiah 7, that the virgin will conceive. In chapter 9, that 
The Son that is given to us, His government, His peace will increase without end. And then as we read in chapter 11, He's the one who is going to rule over the nations to decide disputes, to govern them. So there's peace and prosperity through His rule, His government, through His prominence. Now, if this is God's work, if this is by His grace, what is our role in that? Is this going to happen regardless of what you and I do? If we respond or don't respond, is this still going to take place? Well, for the most part, uh, there, there are many prophecies that are obviously conditional. That God says, this judgment is going to fall. But if there's repentance, that God says, I will turn away from what I intended to do. And this, this prophecy, though, is one of those that falls into a category where God, he doesn't give a conditional promise. He gives a promise. He gives us a glimpse of what he is going to do. It is unconditional. God reveals his purpose, his purposes of grace for his people. And there's no strings attached to this. God says, I will do this. I will be exalted. But what does that mean for us as particular members of God's people? We can say that God's promises for us to enjoy them, we still have to have faith, don't we? Now that faith is by his grace. So God's promises, this is an unconditional promise. There's no merit involved. We have nothing to stand before on our own and say we deserve this. But God also says, I I need you to embrace it by faith. It's through the instrument of faith that you take part in this promise, that you participate. And that's what God is calling us to, even in our passage, when in verse 5 he says, Come, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Take up your part in the story. And as you do, that is going, I am going to take that and I'm going to use that to accomplish my purpose. Notice the parallel in verse 3 and verse 5. What do the nations say? Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. What is God's message to his people at the moment? If this is going to happen, if the nations are going to say, Come, let us go, let us learn from the laws of, our, of the Lord, what has to happen? God's people need to embrace this promise by faith and say, come, let us, even now, as God's people, walk in God's ways, walk in his light. And as we do that, God is pleased to use that to hold up before the nations the glory of God, to show that he is the one who loves us. And so to the the rebellious among God's people who are not walking with him, it says, participate, don't be dead weight in God's people. Come, return, embrace my covenant. And to those of us who are walking faithfully with him, it says, your faithfulness matters. What you're doing now matters. Don't don't give up. Don't lose hope. Keep working by his grace. And notice that it's come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Us. It's never to an individual, to do this on their own. It's us as God's people. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, it was a plural you. It was you all. You all. Walk in the, walk in the light of the Lord. Because as Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light, again, your plural light, shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. So how is God going to do this? By our faithfulness. Of course it's by his grace. It's through his reigning king. But it's as we participate, as we're faithful. So don't lose heart. 
God will exalt himself. And let me just end on a personal note. We have so much enjoyed our our time here so far, but let me say to you, I need your help. If if I'm going to minister to our youth, if I'm going to be here, and if we're going to minister as a family, I need you to help me. How can you do that? I need you to have faith, strong faith, that God is going to do what he says. I need you to walk in the light of the Lord, learning his ways, challenging me to walk in the light of the Lord, challenging our family to be faithful, to not lose heart. I need you to have strong marriages. I need you to have strong relationships. I need you to build community with each other. Because as you do that, you will help us do that. And as we do that, we'll help you do that. We need each other. That's the message. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The mountains are moving. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in what you're doing. We know that we are not there yet, but we would be patient and trust that you are working after purposes in this world. We would take this good news that you have delivered and we would use it to spur us on, to be hopeful, to know that even though it's easy to get discouraged when we see violence and we see destruction, we see ruined relationships all around us, Father, even within your church, we would confess that you are on the throne and you will reign. And that is going to happen. We ask that you would help us participate in that by your grace, that we would invest in each other and help each other to walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen.